Welcome to the Principles of Performance podcast, where we discuss how to optimize your health, fitness, and performance. Drawing on decades of experience of working as coaches, consultants, and trainers to top performers, athletes, and teens from professional sports to top universities to the U.S. military, Eric Degatti and Mike Perry discuss topics and strategies of how to perform at your highest level and be your very best. Join us and our friends and colleagues who are leaders in the fitness and performance industry as we investigate and challenge the most popular training, nutrition, lifestyle, and recovery protocols. Here we are with the Principles of Performance podcast. I am your host, Eric Degatti, along with my friend and co-host, Mike Perry. We got a, a different one today, Mike. It's just me and you, some quality time together. You, you know what? We deserve it. You know, we haven't made time for one another. And I think it's time that we carve out some hours in the schedule and, uh, you know, reconnect. So it's good to yeah. see you, buddy. I, I think the last time we did a Q&A, if I'm correct, we were actually up in Rhode Island and we did one over beers, uh, and preparing for a lot at the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so this is a, we've stockpiled a bunch of questions that we've gotten from, from people who are listeners and people on, on social media, and we're going to get through as many of them as we can through today. So this, uh, may get a little tangential, um, which is a a fancy word that we got in trouble for being Brett Jones and I were teaching a workshop together and someone said we were too tangential. We went off on too many tangents, I guess, but that's what the purpose of the show is. So let's go. All right. You ready for some questions? Yeah. I know let's you had some you gave to me and then, and then some of them actually match up with some of the ones that, that, that I've gotten. Perfect. And a let's, lot of them, let's shoot. a lot of them seem to focus around this theme of working with an older population. Now, obviously it's the biggest growing segment for, for us as trainers. And if you're smart, uh, you'll get into that population. I'll even talk about a project that I've uh, launched specifically targeting uh, a certain niche of that. But but let's dive in with the first question. This person's looking uh, for favorite exercise to do with older adults in a gym setting, which is kind of a loaded question. Um, but also any specifically knee-friendly recommendations would be helpful too, as many clients have had knee replacements or some sort of knee injury. Do you want me to start? Or are you going to start? Go ahead. You start it off. Um, honestly, uh, I think with any older individual, I think the second you can teach them to use their hips and load their hips and, and do some basics of a hip hinge, I think that's the starting points for everybody. Just learning how to bend those knees, how to sit back and load those hips and stand up. Um, that'll set the tone for a squat down the road. So I think that probably one of the most important things I would do is just teach them how to use their hips, start with an elevated deadlift and gradually work their range of motion. And obviously if you do your evaluation and correctives, you're going to, you're going to put together some mobility work for them as well. But, um, you know, I would start off with the deadlift and just get them comfortable lifting something heavy-ish off the ground, gain some confidence. And then you can start to add a little bit more knee flexion and do some deloaded squats. And before you know it, you're going to be doing a, a squat pattern as well. So I introduced that deadlift and then I start to integrate the squat um, in various ways. But uh, to, to, to be quite honest, that has been something that over time has been a very, very good approach for me is just gradually getting them 
from a hinge and then walking that towards uh, towards the squat where we're, we're essentially just adding a little bit more um, dorsiflexion in the ankles and knee flexion. But I've used that as a continuum and it's a safe way because the pattern looks so similar that we can sneak up on them. And, and a lot of the times they don't realize that we're getting them into an, a fairly nice squat, even though we're coaching the deadlift the entire time. So the way I'm going to approach this is, is regardless of whether how old you are, is a couple tenants that they always stick by is number one is, do you really have a knee problem? Is there a medical diagnosis here? Or do you just, do you just move really shitty? Because we know that we could take somebody that says, oh, I feel pain in my knee when I lunge or squat and just change their technique. And all of a sudden they don't, it doesn't bother their knee anymore. And so we would have saved ourselves a whole lot of time doing a bunch of corrective exercises or avoiding certain movements that we could have done just with some better coaching. So do you really have a, a pathological problem here, a medical issue that we need to work around? Number one. Number two is that, especially the knee, I always tell people your knee is kind of a dumb hinge. It just should open and close for the most part. There's not really much rotation there or should, nor should there, should there be or lateral movement. And so really it's just getting caught in the crossfire of you said the hips and also the ankles. So if your ankles and your, your hips aren't doing what they should, well, your knee's going to end up taking the, the, the brunt of that in the crossfire. And so you got to look and see what does their ankle mobility look like? What does their hip mobility look like? And then once they have that, what does their foot and ankle stability look like? And then what does their hip stability look like? And then pattern over that. So that's, that's kind of the approach. And so uh, to, when, when I say it's a loaded question, like favorite exercise for older adults, like that's all kind of relative. And we're going to circle back to this in a later question. Um, but knee friendly is, is, I think you hit the nail on the head starting at the hip, but I think knee friendly is, is taking the stress off of the knee in the first place by getting better mobility in the ankle and hip, getting better stability in the foot and ankle and, and the hips and pelvis. And then from there, just work your way up, you know, from a pattern progression and a coordination progression to make sure they just move well. And nine times out of 10, that's knee, quote unquote knee friendly. You don't need to go, you know, and steal a bunch of knees over toes guy drills. Just, and have just go right doing, to that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, because that's what people do. And they'll do that yeah, for 20 minutes at the, at the beginning of every session and say like, look, if, if you're, you're, you have really shitty ankle mobility and hip mobility because you sit all day, you know, doing a bunch of, you know, tib anterior tib raises isn't going to fix that. So, you know, find out why you have this issue before you kind of just throw exercises based on the diagnosis, which may even not be a real diagnosis. So, yeah, no, I, I think to your point though, just, just quickly to your point, I think the diagnosis and having an actual medical professional be like, it's this versus you just get some tendonitis. Cause like a lot of the times they'll just throw a tendonitis or a tendinosis at the end of it. And that's your diagnosis. And a lot of the times it's like, oh, I got bad knees. Well, it's like you got bad knees. What does even that that what does that mean? You know what I'm saying? So you're right. I think clarity on what's going on as far as a diagnosis goes, because you know, just to say I have bad knees, uh, you know, you could I could hit you in the knee with shovel with a shovel today, and you'd have bad knees, right? So I, I think we just need more context, and we have to ask a lot better questions early on before we even get to the exercises. Well, the best is when someone will say to you, "Yeah, I got my my I hurt my knee because uh, I'm a runner, and I hurt my knee running," and I'll say, "Well, you only run with one leg." And they go, what do you mean? I said, well, you're only your left knee hurts. Why does only your left knee hurt? Not your right. You run with both. Oh, I don't know. And why is it your knee and not your ankle or not your hip? Because you use all those when you run. Why, why does that not hurt? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> and that's that's really where you want to ask better questions to say, okay, well, maybe there's more to it than just go in and do a bunch of clamshells and TKEs and this is going to fix all that. 
So that kind of brings up something that's been a recent buzz on social media is uh, Stuart McGill, uh, who's kind of known as is is a big OG in the low backfields, written tons of books on it, and and is is really done some some brilliant work, but has gotten some flack because he went on Peter Atia's podcast and was talking about you know low back stuff and and was really kind of. Um, being very critical of, of using the deadlift, especially in older populations. And so then we end up getting questions like, should older uh, trainees not do deadlifts? And I got that from a client of mine who's a you know avid listener of the show. And so I said to him, it's, it's almost like um, when people say, I'll say, let's take it to the other side of the spectrum. When people say kids shouldn't lift, right? Or is it safe for kids to lift? And I say, well, okay, well, lifting quote unquote lifting or putting weights in somebody's hands is because the challenge of gravity isn't enough to get us to the goal and so if you can do a stationary lunge or if you can do a squat or if you can do whatever right enough that you you can't do enough reps to create challenge and we need to create additional challenge then put some weights in your hands and there's some kids that at a young age that they're they're have the competency to do that Whereas there's kids who are in high school that I won't let them touch a weight. So it's not really so much an age thing as it is a competency thing. And I'm going to say that same thing for the older population. If I have a client that moves really, really well, okay, number one, has good exercise skill, like is actually good at the deadlift and, and is built well for the deadlift, why can't I do that? Right. Is there something that changes in our tissues? Like once being it's your 50th birthday and now your, your, your tissues can't handle that. Now, obviously you have to be a little more careful in terms of loading and those sorts of things. But other than that, like, why wouldn't you do it? Yeah. So, you know, and, and it's funny, you know, I've, I've listened to, to Stuart McGill sort of battle it out for a very, very long time with multiple people. And, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of the times you have to consider the lens at which people view things, right? Um, you know, we don't know how many people have good coaching, bad coaching, and 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 low. You know, a lot of people, eighty somewhat people, eighty five percent of the population is going to have low back pain anyway. So, think about you've got eighty five percent of the population with low back pain, and then they start to deadlift, and most likely it's not going to go well to begin with. So, maybe maybe what Stuart's saying is, hey, maybe based off of the lens that I see things, it's not the best choice. But with that being said, I think we just need to do a better job at learning how to teach. Um, I listen. I've been teaching hinging and deadlifting for. A very, very long time. Um, and I can honestly tell you, I would say more than half of the coaches that I've seen out there do not know how to teach a really good quality deadlift. They just don't. So I think as coaches, we need to do a little bit better job at understanding coaching, cueing, um, you know, from the assessment process, what are they capable of? Um, but I, here's the way that I look at it. I think that having the ability to lift a heavy-ish object off the ground safely is a pretty good skill to have. Now, how heavy? It depends on the situation. It depends on what you're looking to do. But I think everybody should know how to do some form of a, of a deadlift. Yeah. Now, the other thing, you know, that you need to consider is that, like, is that even part of your goal? Number one, like, are we just doing it to check a box? And then also, what are they considering a deadlift, right? We have this conversation all the time. We talk about um, patterns versus exercises. Is that, you know, how many times you've been told by, you know, we'll, we'll teach a workshop and we'll say, all right, 
how many people have either had their clients told or you told yourself that you shouldn't squat, you shouldn't do X because of Y, right? You shouldn't squat because of your knees. You shouldn't do this because of your back. And because what is that doctor thinking of when they think of the squat, right? They're thinking of like knee wraps and belts and belt, you know, back squats with, you know, blood and sweat and spit on the mirror and ACDC blasting where like squatting could also be getting in and out of a chair, you know, deadlifting is relative. It's just hip hinging. And then it's just really how, and how much you load it. Like, you know, I personally, because of my limb lengths, I suck at deadlifting. If I do a traditional deadlift, I, as soon as I get to a certain point, my back does get cranky. So does that mean back, shredless hurt your back? No, I'm not really built for it. But if I go sumo, I can cheat the range a little bit. I go trap bar. If I go single leg, I can do a bunch of different variations and, and be able to still do the pattern and not get hurt. So I think there's something to like, well, what type of deadlift are you talking about that we need to kind of look in context of, of what, we're, what we mean in terms of deadlift? So, all right. So now speaking of other things that are somewhat controversial, um, talking about running, we got a question here about running and do you recommend running for general population clients and how do you incorporate it to improve their health and fitness? Uh, no, I don't, <laughs> I don't recommend it. Uh, next question, please. Um, no, honestly, um, here's the thing. There's some people that have run their entire life and they're going to get away with it. Um, but running is a skill just like swinging a kettlebell or strength training. But for some reason, people assume that well, if they can walk, they can run, they should just start using running as a modality for fitness. And uh, it will work until it doesn't. Because the thing about running is if you're not running, and then you even start and you go for a five minute run, you're going to be absolutely destroyed. And you're going to assume that that's a great workout because you're introducing this, this very, very large stressor in which your body's not acclimated to, right? But over time, most people don't even understand proper running mechanics or how to lay out a systematic approach that is going to follow very, very small incremental steps and volume to make sure people aren't getting jacked up. People didn't even understand how to approach that. So they just basically stand up and they start running because they think, well, everybody can run and then they get injured. Um, and then they blame running and it's just like, well, you know, yeah, you can blame running, but at the same time, maybe you should have taken the time to learn how to run. So, um, but it's not the most forgiving modality for, for a lot of individuals. Now, if you play sports that require running, uh, you can't row or, you know, assault bike your way to it. So um, I think it depends on what you're asking of yourself. Now, do I think adults should have some sort of capacity to do a little bit of running at some point? Yes, I do. Um, I'm not saying you have to go prep for a, you know, a half marathon or even a 5k, but you know, and if you get caught in a situation where you need to go from point A to point B and you don't have an assault bike or a rower close by to get to get you from point A to point B, uh, I think having the ability to run or jog or sprint is is never a bad thing to have in your arsenal, if possible. Yeah. And and I'm, I'm going to kind of sound redundant here, but it's it's in context. What do you mean by running? Um you're talking about a slow jog. You're talking about sprinting. They're they're completely different me mechanically. Um, and then also, do you have the movement capacity to be able to do that? Now, the thing that that people don't appreciate with running, because they they because they don't have any context for it, they say, okay, well, I'm just gonna wake up, lace them up, and and I'm gonna go run around the block without considering uh, volume and loading. Um, the same way they would like you wouldn't go to a gym if you haven't worked out at all, and then go ahead and I'm gonna do you know, I'm going to do legs for an hour, right? 
because you just say, well, I just don't have the tolerance for that. What they don't see that with in terms of running because they see it as somewhat harmless. Plus you see your, your neighbor who may be a good runner who runs effortlessly. And it doesn't mean you can't get there. It means that understand that running and, and why it's so unforgiving is has a huge eccentric component, right? Every time you land in a stride, you're putting four times body weight through that lower leg. Now, if you do that really shitty form, it's going to amplify some stuff. And then if you do that over and over again, do anything that's eccentrically overloading and you're going to get incredibly sore. Then you also have to consider you need to get the tissue tolerance to absorb that that shock of hitting the ground every single time, especially if you're not a, a good runner who has, you know, kind of that good floating stride. And so now you have people that say, oh, well, I got shin splints. You probably don't have shin splints. What you actually have is you just have really sore anterior tibs because you've never had to lift your foot up that much to clear the ground with every stride. And now you feel really sore. You can't get up a set of stairs. Um, and if you don't have good, you know, spring in your ankles, well, then it's got to find it somewhere and it's going to either go up to your knee or your hip, or your low back. And, and then now it manifests itself Well, running hurts my knees or running hurts my back. So I think progression is something that we really don't look at well with running. And so, yes, should you? Absolutely. I think everybody should be able to run a certain amount, right? You know, and most adults should be able to run a, a 12 minute mile, right? Um, and be able to do that. That's not incredibly uh, overreaching in terms of a, a milestone for uh, aerobic capacity. It's not a, in terms of uh, the skill of running. And then I also really think that everybody should work to some level of sprinting if they can, unless there's some significant restriction you have in your you know, musculoskeletal health, there is something to sprinting that you just can't get other places. Right. And I think it's incredibly important, whether it's your you have a sport or that demands it or not. I think if you can add some sprints, it's there's great ways you can introduce it. I'm a huge fan. We had Derek Hansen on the show um, and he his 10 by 10 method is so simple and it is so elegant to get people just to just I to go. Exactly. And just say you're going to sprint 10 yards and then you're going to take the next 10 yards to slow down. You're going to turn around. You're going to sprint 10 yards back and you do it 10 times. That's it. And in, in the beginning, I wouldn't have you start from a cold start because that's how, especially if you have an older population, you know, hey, it's how you yank a hamstring or an Achilles, um, but do a, a, a ramp up for 10 yards, sprint for 10 yards, slow down for 10 yards. So you don't have a lot of deceleration. You don't have any sharp acceleration and it is incredibly important. And it, there's something invigorating uh, as well mentally just to be able to just move and run fast. Right. Even though you're not maybe even running that fast for you to feel like you're really running fast, I think is something that that is important. Um, so, yes, in terms of running, I think it should be, but not in the case of, hey, I want to burn some calories, go out and for a half hour run. You got to understand that has to be in context. Well, I, I think, you know, the, the 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 nice part about that, too, Eric, for older populations is, you know, even if, you know, an older individual is sprinting and it doesn't seem fast, as long as the effort's there, they're going to get the, the neurological adaptation, right? And that is going to, you know, that's what's going to also keep them sharp as well, because if you think about sort of, uh, you know, motor unit recruitment, especially with older individuals, we know that we lose strength and power as we get older. Well, sprinting is going to help with overall motor unit recruitment, right? So as far as from a neurological standpoint, staying a little bit sharper and having a little bit more power, being able to coordinate and move quickly, um, you'd be amazed at how that can carry over to whether it's catching yourself, uh, you know, falling off of a curb or catching yourself when you're slipping on ice, um, you know, getting the body acclimated to moving quickly, 
um, is never a bad thing. So I, I think incorporating it with older individuals is something we highly recommend. Just listen, exercise some common sense before you go ahead and start just hammering people with sprints. Um, you know, because that's, that literally is a recipe for people getting jacked up. So that kind of lends itself to our next two questions that we have here. Um, that, uh, one is that we have the question about what, like, what are some non-negotiable things if you're dealing with older athletes slash weekend warriors, like what are some of the key things on that checklist? Um, I think one of the, the, the things that I try to do early on, and I mentioned this is, is, um, learning to load their hips, um, I think is important. I think restoring their deep squat as quickly as possible. Um, now for some people that's a month for some people, it's not, but having the ability to eventually work towards a, a nice, deep, deep squat. And there's several different ways to do that, but those are non-negotiables for me. And I think, um, I think if you can get and work your athletes or, or any of your clients to the point where they can do, you know, 10 to 15 perfect pushups and even one to two body weight pull-up variations, I think those are, those are incredible goals to work towards because uh, if you can do those well, I think literally you'll have a much easier life in general because you're going to be able to manage your own body weight and you're going to be able to exercise your, your joints through a full range of motion via that squat. So I think those would be my non-negotiables. Okay, so I'm going to go a little bit deeper in this because this is a world that I've I've really uh, gotten into with the latest project that I've just launched. So um, I've launched an online coaching program specifically targeting uh, guys over 40 who are like ultra competitive and and want to stay fit. Just you know they they're trying to follow their old high school or college program and they're breaking down and they can't kind of figure out why, but, but they don't want to give up doing what they want to do. And so, you know, um, there's a, a bunch of things within that checklist for myself is getting a frame of reference of, of kind of where they're at and what kind of, what has been accumulated up until this point. So we always say that you got to look at the three things, the past, you know, what have they done up until this point, the present, you know, where are they at now? Kind of getting an assessment of how well do you move? You know, what is your, uh, looking a little bit into your aerobic and anaerobic capacity, like, and what is your heart rate recovery and those sorts of things. And then getting a baseline, where are you even at with your athleticism? So we have a, a direction of where we, where we go. And usually where there's that big drop off and you mentioned it, if you look at the stats every year after 40, we drop off 1% muscle size. And that's why it's so important that we do whatever we can to, to train for hypertrophy, not necessarily so we get jacked at the beach. That's just a nice side effect if you can get some of that. But you lose 3 to 5% strength and power and 8 to 10% of speed and explosiveness. And that's really the biggest thing. And so I think we don't have enough um, emphasis on that. And I know I can tell you for myself that one of the biggest things that I really focus on in my training is that, is that working and training with intent. And whether it's you're gauging it with uh, something like a, a, a VBT device where you can track uh, velocity uh, of, of bar movement of yourself, or you're using medicine balls, or using something to safely really train that speed and power. And you're incorporating, as we mentioned earlier, incorporating sprints, I think that is so crucial and something that's overlooked because we look at, you know, the, the clients who come into us and they're 40, 50 plus, and we want to wrap them in bubble wrap. 
And that doesn't have to be the case, it, not, not in the least. And so um, if you progress properly, you, we need really need to focus on that. And if you think about from not just a um, you know weekend warrior standpoint, but even from a functional standpoint, uh, Andy Galpin was was really keen in pointing this out in one of his interviews with Andrew Huberman, talking about like what is our biggest concern as we age is falls, and part of that is not necessarily muscle strength; it's the ability to get that foot down in time so we don't fall, to be able to grab that railing so we don't fall. You need to have the speed and rate of force production to be able to do that. Well, you need to train that. And you're not going to get that going at a slow 3-1-3-1 tempo on a fixed selectorized machine. And so we we don't do a good job of, of knowing and understanding the difference. And maybe we can go down this rabbit hole a little bit between strength and stability, knowing the difference between strength and power and speed. They're, they're different entities. They're not the same thing. And so in terms of checklists, I want to make sure that we're working towards developing speed and power even though, look, you're not going to have the speed and power that you had when you're in high school, but you should be the most powerful guy in your block for your age group, right? And have that, and you need to train for that. So that's one of the things in terms of my checklist that I want to look at is that everything is moving towards that for that athlete. Then the other thing that, that I've become much more appreciative of going through it myself is that aerobic fitness is uh, usually overlooked. Like, we do a real detailed job of programming for their strength training and so forth. And then we just say, yeah, go do some cardio, right? Where if you're really smart about your, your aerobic uh, and cardiovascular programming, that that's kind of the tide that rises all boats. And so the more fit you get, the less kind of aches and pains you have, the more resilient you are, the better you'll recover, all of those things, not to mention you'll have more, you know, gas when you go to play tennis or, or whatever it may be. But I think we underappreciate and underprogram people's cardio and, and conditioning work. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think a big part of it is, is if you think about when people go to see a personal trainer, whether they hire them in a one-on-one -on -one setting or in a group training setting, um, usually the thing left off at the end is what? Cardio. Like no one's going to sit around and, and pay a trainer uh, to do, you know. 30 minutes of cardio. And I, and I completely understand that, but I think what we need to do as an industry is, is, um, you know, start educating people on, Hey, look, um, maybe you're going to be here and you're going to do your, you're going to do your mobility and you're going to do your speed, your power and you're lifting with me. But, um, you know, I need you to get another uh, two hours in on your own and that can be easily done, you know, via whatever. So I think we have to put the onus on our clients to, you know, have a, have a true conversation with them and say, look, like, there's, there's sometimes we can't get everything done in this scenario. It's like running, right? At a certain point, if you're going to be running, going back to that, if you're going to, if you're going to prepare for a marathon, you have to just literally put away hours of time, like stack away hours of time each week to prepare for that marathon. You have to do that. So, you know, I, I think we just have to make sure that we're educating people on like, Hey, if this is your goal, this is also the path to get there and be realistic with that conversation. Because I think a lot of times we miss it. I think that's that's what we do is we just we we skip it because maybe we can't get it in within the training session. But I think we need to reinforce the other habits of, of you know, zone two cardio and, and you know, whether it's, you know, looking at, um, you know, sort of your knee and all that other type stuff. But I think we need to take that holistic growth total like total body mindset versus just like sets, reps and things we do in the gym as well. Hey, everybody, a quick break in the action here. Hope you're enjoying the show and we appreciate you listening. 
We're working hard to bring you the highest quality content and best guests every single week. So if you could do us a big favor and go and like and subscribe to the show on whatever platform you get your podcasts on, it would be greatly appreciated. Be sure to listen at the end of the show also to find out more information about our courses, as well as a special discount code for all our listeners. Thanks again, and let's get back to the show. Now let's go a little bit more specific because we did have a question specifically about power work for older athletes and how we introduce that. So I know for myself, I mentioned med balls. They're, they're a super safe, easy entry point. Like the half kneeling med ball slam is you're getting coordination, you're getting stability, you're getting, you can train posture if you know how to coach it well, and it's really safe. And your feedback, if you don't have fancy BBT devices or anything like that, is the, the higher the ball bounces and the louder the ball bounces, the harder you push. And so can you make it louder and bounce higher? And so there's your feedback. Yeah. And then there's a competitive element to that, which ultimately is what you need when you're training for power. Now, a lot of people, when they think power training, they automatically lean into the Olympic lifts and they became super popular with uh, CrossFit. And so you see a lot of, a lot of the 40 plus population will then kind of gravitate towards that. But that is one thing that I'm super skeptical of with older uh, population. If they haven't been really, they either haven't had a, a good foundation in history with it, or they haven't been progressed properly to that point. That's you're jumping a lot of steps to get to that. And I, I, and I probably can come up with some much better variations, whether it's a something simple as a kettlebell, you know, kettlebell swing or, it's single arm uh, in single leg, you know, or split stance um, dumbbell variations that I'm going to go to as far as that. Um, so what are some of your thoughts on how you introduce some, some power work into uh, older athletes programs? Well, it's funny. You mentioned med balls. I've been using uh, med balls for, for a very, very long time, but I've, I've really started to incorporate a lot more med ball work with, with some of my older uh, clients. Um, you know, obviously there's the power production, right? You can, you can do med ball slams. You can do chest passes. You can do stuff that you can express power, but think about from a range of motion standpoint, right? So if you have a client and you want to do some overhead slams, but yet they have poor, poor range of motion and bilateral shoulder flexion, right? Don't load them there yet. Right. That's, there's still a continuum. You can still train power within the range of motion that they have, but just be smart about it. So I, that's one thing I want people to consider is when they we think about prescription, right? I think med ball is going to be super, super, and really a nice way to do it. And there's so many different variations and patterns, but you know, there's something um, to be said about when you're doing something like a med ball chest pass and you're catching it, right? It's the ability to sort of handle a, a load or a perturbation, right? That's, that's really, really sort of a missing point of, of medicine ball training that I think people forget about is if you get a little bit heavier ball, I'm not saying go, go grab the 50 pound Dynamax and do wall ball until you vomit. But my point is, is, you know, you get to that point where say, if you're used to chucking twos and fours for high speed, you introduce a 12 and you start having, having them catch different ways and, you know, start having them just work with a little bit heavier ball and they have to manage that load relatively quickly, whether it's an anti-rotation flexion and extension, that's another way that you can actually build in power and deceleration and anti-rotation all in one movement. And from an efficiency standpoint, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Yeah. And, and that's exactly where I was going next is understand where do most of your non-contact injuries occur? They happen in deceleration. It's your ability, you know, you're going to change direction and cut on a soccer field or on a basketball court and that ankle blows out or you don't, you're trying to, you know, try to throw a ball um, and you haven't thrown one in a while and you don't have the ability to slow your arm down and you, you know, tweak your rotator cuff. So 
that's the first place I start really is teaching you how to build your brakes and teaching you how to catch the ball before you throw the ball, teaching you before we work on a jump, can you land? And something as simple as just a single leg hop out. Can you balance on one leg in, the, in an athletic stance and then hop to the other leg in an athletic stance and then do that in multiple planes? And once we kind of get a feel for that, then I can start incorporating a little bit more production. And then we got to fill in the blank with that that amortization of transitioning from deceleration to acceleration. And that's where quote unquote plyometrics comes in. And that's where I think that's another component of our older athletes that we lose quite a bit of that we need to train is elasticity. Now, the easiest entry point once we've progressed through deceleration for elasticity is jump rope. And it's so simple. And there's so much to be learned from there if it's coached well and teaching them little things about landing light, getting up on the ball of your foot, posture, keeping a straight line from your ear to ankle, uh, creating rhythm, landing in the same spot every time. Like these are all the rules that I'm giving somebody when they're doing that, learning about efficiency, making it look and feel easy. All these things have incredible carryover, plus builds great efficiency or elasticity, I should say, in one of the areas of your body where you get the worst blood flow, which is your Achilles, and getting that so you're not the guy who blows out his Achilles just trying to run out a, a ground ball at, you know, at, the, at your men's softball game. Yeah, no, I mean, and 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 I think you 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 definitely mentioned and that was huge. But jumping rope is probably the lowest form, and you, you just get those little little bounces. And and to be honest, even some agility ladder, right? Some very very light agility ladder, especially if you pick drills where people are on the midfoot a little bit, you can build some elasticity, and you can actually get some different types of tissue loading. Whether you're doing like icky shuffles or crossovers, right? You're gonna get you're going to get that sort of springiness built into the lower limb, but you're also going to load the foot in different ways and different directions. And that's going to build some resiliency in the foot as well. So um, when you're making the decisions on stuff like that, I, consider all of the other benefits of what you're doing. Yes, jump rope is great for elasticity, but if you think about all the other benefits of those exercises, um, I think it can be uh, really, really advantageous to when it comes to programming. But I think also when it comes to volume and intensity and amplitude, I think at the beginning, I think, you know, uh, repetitive exposure over time where you're doing, you know, the same movements, but 70, 80% and you're developing that rhythm and that timing and that foldability in your hips. So your entire body is just getting efficient with the movement. I think you have to spend a little bit of time there before you go to that high horsepower scenario where you're really, really loading and, you know, doing max effort jumps. So um, I, I think there's a continuum and uh, depending on the coach and the situation, I think programming that continuum is an art and a science for sure. All right. So speaking of programming, and we've talked a lot about context and where you are in the continuum. Uh, the next question is actually not a, a listener question. It's a, it's a theoretical that I proposed uh, to Mike the other day when we were going through, we were mapping out some stuff for, for some, uh, some, some things within our curriculum. And I said, okay, theoretically, if you had two people that came in, um, they're both, you know, let's just say they're both females over 40. And one says her goal is to improve her import, uh, her performance in tennis. She's a tennis at recreational tennis athlete, right? Weekend warrior, nothing professional or anything like that. Okay. The other one comes in and she, her primary goal is fat loss, right? Now they're both coming in and they have not been training, or if they have been training, it's been minimal at best. Um, they haven't done anything really specific. How different are those programs actually going to look when the rubber hits the road? When you put your, your, your 
pen to paper and you write that program, really how much different are those two programs, even though they have two different goals? Same meat, different bread. That's it. That's the only different. The beginning of the session, the way that you prepare athlete, the athlete is going to look very, very different from a strength training standpoint. The meat, it's going to, we're going to push, pull, we're going to do our basic patterns. And then at the end, um, you know, the, the individual that's looking for a little bit more fat loss GPP is going to do something a little bit more joint friendly, something that's over time. Whereas I think the athlete is probably going to do something a little bit more performance oriented, but the meat, honestly, the meat's the same, man, the bread, the bread on either side is different. And I think that's, that's the thing that people truly need to understand when it comes to getting someone strong, we'll call it functionally strong, even though I don't even want to say that name because it just sounds ridiculous, but I think you understand where I'm coming from on this. Yeah. And that's a great way to put it is, is that analogy that you use, because what's going to happen immediately with the vast majority of trainers is they're going to take the fat loss person and they're going to immediately do hits and Tabatas and all that stuff. Cause they think that's going to burn more quote unquote calories. Right. And they're going to do, you know, bicep curls and mirror, mirror muscles. And the, the, and on the other side, the other person's going to do nothing but speed ladders and attach bands to, to, to their tennis rackets and do everything rotational, rotational med ball throws. And it's going to look vastly different where at the end of the day, it's going it, to, they really should look somewhat similar. Cause if you've really paid attention, they're both coming in at the same entry point. We're not talking about an advanced tennis athlete. We're not talking about taking Serena 10, 15 years into her, into her career. Who's got a huge training base underneath there. We're talking about a, a novice, right? You're, you're trying to apply, you're jumping a whole bunch of steps here, right? So, and even the advanced athletes, as you and I can both attest to, because we work with them, is there still needs to be that the fundamentals, they're still going to push, pull, lunge, hinge, squat, right? Rotate. They're still going to do those things. Now, which hinge we pick may be a little bit different right? We may do a little more unilateral work with the athletic person. Um, we may do a little bit more um, different things in terms of speed and tempo with, with the athletic person, but they're still doing some variation of those patterns. And then to your end is where, you know, maybe jumping rope and ladders or, or shuffles or things like that may be more appropriate on either side of that, that meat in the sandwich for the athlete. And where things like sleds and so forth that they can they can work a little bit more in a fatigue state and not have any high risk um, for the for the fat loss person. But if you really look at it, probably eighty percent of their programs would look very similar, and they wouldn't yeah. look all that different. And 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 it's so we have a couple of classes that we uh, that we run where we actually introduce a little bit more of that athletic type movement. We do ladders and we do some, you know, some some lower base jumps and we do uh, you know a bunch of different athletic based movement stuff. And and really what it is is it's just um, it's sort of a, a lower level version of what we do with our athletes as well, right? You know, I mean, sure we're gonna we're gonna choose different modalities and 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 coach it very very differently, but. Um, we're still, you know, trying to get those older individuals to be a little bit more efficient and move a little bit more athletically with their body. Because again, 
yes, we have to use machines. We don't have to use machines, but yes, you know, machines are a great option when you have joint issues and, you know, a, a significant injury history, but, you know, being able to, to skip, being able to shuffle, being able to, you know, move athletically as you get older, um, especially as you get like, you know, I'm going to be mid, I'm mid forties here. And, and I see a lot of people at my age, man, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different types of mid forties, right? There's people in their mid forties that are still training like athletes. And there's people in their mid forties that look like they're mid eighties. So, you know, I think if you can start to integrate a little bit more of that athletic based movements into your programming, you get a, you get a dose at very, very small. I think you're going to, I think you're going to see a significant improvement in the way that you feel and, and your overall just energy and your ability to go from point A to point B. So you hit on a, a keen point there and the difference between to kind of put a, a, a bow on all this stuff on, on training older populations, specifically athletic older populations, is that if I, is that if I go to train a high school team, like tomorrow I have a high school baseball team, most of those kids have, for the most part, the same scenario, right? They all got up, they all went to school at eight, they all got done at school too. They all sat in class all day right? They don't have hugely different backgrounds or, or individual considerations to, 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 to take into uh, account, right? Whereas if you take someone and fast forward, you know, you don't know if this person works in a factory or if they work and sit at a desk all day. You don't know if this person went and played, you know, four years of college sports as well as another, you know, you know, semi-professionally somewhere. You don't know if this person's been working out the whole time or not working out the whole time. You, there's so many other variables there's, and then as well as the lifestyle stuff and, uh, sleep and stress and all these things that, that you have to customize it a lot more with the older athlete than you do. Cause you don't know what their tolerance is going to be. And you just can't go and pretty much blanket it. Like I can with a high school team because their tolerance for the most part is going to be about the same you take anybody over 40 and there's vastly different situations than what they have. And so you have to be a lot smarter with your program. Yeah. Especially when you're introducing any type of new exercise or like a sharp change in exercise, because that's where people tend to get the, that really big soreness, right? You talked about, uh, you know, eccentric loading and delayed onset muscle soreness, right? If you haven't, you know, if you're training someone that hasn't done lunges and you do four sets of 20 on day one, guess what? Their hamstrings are going to be torched for a couple of days because, uh, you know, you picked an exercise that is heavy, heavy uh, eccentric loading. So I, I, I think you just, again, you have to consider all that. You have to consider how everything makes a significant difference. And in my opinion, when you are introducing a newer movement or a variation of a movement, um, you know, two to three sets of three to five reps is how I start everybody. I even say to them, look, you may, you may feel like you didn't do anything. That's okay. Cause all I'm trying to do is to get their body and their nervous system acclimated to a movement and feeling safe within that particular movement. And if I overdo it, we could get some sort of threat response. And all of a sudden, you know, our whole game plan of trying to improve something goes out the window. So um, when in doubt, you know, dose it. It's uh, it's kind of like when you're putting salt on the steak, right? If you put too much salt, you can ruin it, but you put the right amount, it's going to be perfect. Okay. So one last kind of concept that we're going to squeeze in here is uh, talking about introducing, we had a question about bilateral versus unilateral, which seems to be this debate that's ongoing where it, the answer as, as with most things says it, it depends, but when do you do one versus the other? When would you lean more towards bilateral training versus unilateral training? Um, I think it really depends on the individual and, and how often I'm going to see them. I was actually having a, a conversation with, uh, with one of my coaches earlier. And I said, well, if you could only 
train someone one day a week and you only had them for a half hour, what exercises would you give them? And I'm like, that's your day one. And, and that's what, that's how I basically wanted him to sort of consider thinking about it. So, but in general, um, people learn bilaterally how to move quicker than they learn how to unilaterally move or even in a split stance. So for example, it's easier to teach someone a squat full range of motion than it is a single leg squat. It's easier to teach someone a bilateral deadlift than it is a single leg deadlift. There's a rotary stability component. There's all that. So um, when in doubt, I recommend teaching a bilateral version first to get the individual ready. And once they're competent on that, then you can start to introduce the second ver version of it. If we're talking squat, we're talking, you know, like a, a goblet squat into like a single leg squat. But I think when you introduce it, you have to introduce it in a way that they have to realize one is they have the same name squat within the word, within the, you know, the exercise name, but they are not the same whatsoever. They are taught completely different. And I, I wish they weren't even called the same name because they're so different. So um, the, the couple things to consider is one, I always say that your assessment writes your program for me. And so when we look at both your movement as well as your motor control doing you know, like a, a, a Y balance test or something like that, that if I see a significant difference from one side to the other, where there's a significant asymmetry, well, it doesn't mean we can't push or pull or, or squat or lunge. It just means we'd probably be better off loading one side at a time because you've just shown me that the communication through your, you know, shoulder down your arm and back up or through, you know, through your pelvis down your leg and back up is not the same on the right that it is the left. And if I go and load you bilaterally with a, you know, deadlift squat, kettlebell swing on the lower side or in the upper body, you know, any kind of barbell lift that you're going to force one of those limbs to someplace that's not ready to go yet. And so that's going to create some issues. It doesn't mean those are bad. It's just until you can show me that you've cleared up these these significant imbalances right to left, I'm just going to go with something that's more open chain and unilateral. Now, mm -hmm. that being said, I also almost go the opposite way um, with unilateral versus bilateral, especially for um, when someone's coming off of a layoff and they're in, in a reintroduction program. So especially like with my athletes and teams that when they are coming back, their first, um, you know, uh, program series, so to speak, is usually two to four weeks of all unilateral stuff for the most part, other than maybe a straight arm hang or something like that. And the reason why is, is, and we have this in our exercise coach is we have kind of strength standards that we set that are body weight relative for each. So I say, okay, before we start bench pressing, you need to show me that you can get a single arm floor press as an example with, for the, for the guys about half your body weight for a good clean eight reps on both sides. Now, if you got that one side, I can get six on my right, I get six on my left, but eight on my right. Well, that's why we're doing what we're doing. Once you can get eight clean on both, then we're kind of ready to start introducing the barbell stuff. And the same thing goes, and we'll find out, we'll clean up a lot of these asymmetries um, by finding that. Plus it creates just naturally better coordination, core stability, um, all of those things that really lend themselves well to when we do start doing the, the bigger bilateral lifts. So that's, I almost always start with unilateral training, especially for my quote unquote trained clients that are just coming off a layoff, or even we, maybe we've been training, um, and we're going to do just a two week block of just unilateral training, just to kind of reset the system and do a little check-in and, and the strength, 
program almost becomes an assessment in itself because then we can say, wow, my, my right leg is way different than my left or, or, or my, my right arm. I can't get as much as my left. And we can use those two weeks, two to three weeks to clean that up. Yeah, no, I actually, I love that idea because if you think about like, if you look at all the lunges and the split squats, a lot of those, uh, we, we can say they're in the, a similar family, right? But, um, cause they're all basically split stance exercises. But if you think about, you know, progressing from a single leg squat, uh, sorry, uh, you starting with a, a bilateral squat and then, um, changing it to a single leg, it's very, very different. There is no sort of easier version of a split stance or a lunge. I mean, yes, you could do step-ups and everything, but I think I like, I like the way how you presented that though. You can clean up the asymmetries a little bit, you know, whether it's split squats or ISOs or, you know, supported ISOs or reverse lunges, but you know, from, from an athlete standpoint, absolutely. I, I love that. That's, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. So one more that ties into that is you had a question uh, someone sent to you about uh, how do you actually start incorporating single leg training? Yeah. So for me, um, the, the thing that I focus on is I want to get them, first of all, comfortable just standing on one leg. And, um, you know, this is where I use the training wheels analogy. And I just say, hey, look, right now, I don't care what you hold on to. I don't care how long or how much you need to hold on to this. But I want to get you in a position where we can, you know, feel the entire foot, that tripod. Um, and then just have a soft knee and having them sit back just a little bit and just hanging out in that single leg stance. And again, I'll have them hold onto a cage, a dowel. I really don't care. I want them to feel as safe as possible. And then what I explain to them is, hey, look, when we progress this, the only way that we're going to be able to progress this is if you start to rely less and less on the outside object to help you complete this isometric hold or whatever. So the progression with a lot of people, they assume we have to do more volume, right? Or we have to add more weight. But with it, with, with situations like this, which is what I call training wheel situations, you have to rely less and less on the training wheels each time you go out and try it. Because if you don't think of it in that way, saying, hey, I got to challenge myself, I got to not use this as much. That's the simplest way to do it. And I think with clients, as we progress, that's the thing we need to teach them is, hey, look, you're getting better at this. Yes, we can add time, but we also have to really have a good conversation about how much are you truly using your hands to execute that position? And that's another variable that people never really talk about. So two things I'll add to that would be, um, is, is number one, creating awareness. Like you talked about the foot, the, the foot and the tripod. Okay. You're going to grab the ground, heel, pinky toe, big toe, and then set that tripod and understand how that's going to set your entire lower leg and then kind of steer your knee. Cause the big mistake we see people make is the knee collapsing into valgus. And then everything kind of goes to hell after that. And then getting your hip to stabilize the upper leg. And then, so once they kind of understand that and do that single leg stance, how do we exemplify or exaggerate that, um, that awareness is do like some RNT reactive neuromuscular training where I can just do that manually. I can just have you go into that single leg athletic stance and I'm just going to go with my fingertips on either side of your knee. And I'm just going to poke right, left, front, back. And I'm just going to do those. And I see, I need you just with your eyes forward, just to kind of don't let me win. And I'm just going to poke. And what you'll notice in the beginning, people make dramatic corrections and that's what makes them fall makes them struggle. And then when they notice to make more fine uh, more refined types of corrections. They don't make these big jumps and they get more and more solid on that single leg position. And so that will then transcend into everything you do single leg, because now they have that greater awareness. And also they have that better reactivity to, to get within there. And now I feel safer loading them doing different things. Now, the other big question, and this is somewhat semantics, but 
what people, some people call single leg training. I don't call single leg training. Single leg training is there's one foot on the ground and the other foot is not on anything, right? That was, that is truly single leg training where some people will consider like a Bulgarian split squat, single leg training. And to my mind, that's split stance training. It's not single leg training. Now, maybe semantics, but what's your two cents on oh, that? Oh, I'm the same way. Well, it, what it does is it truly, it gives you just so much more clarity when it comes to programming. Cause you know, if you're saying that, um, you know, a, a Bulgarian split squat is the same thing as an airborne lunge. Well, you're wrong. It's not. So what it does is that I think what it, it really truly, truly allows you to do is it allows you to dial in and fine tune your programming, right? So if you're doing a, a single leg squat, a true single leg squat, um, it's knee dominant. If you're doing a true single leg deadlift, it's hip dominant. So that allows you to categorize things a little bit more clearly when it comes to looking at your entire programming. And if you don't have that clarity, then you may end up uh, getting too much of one thing. So I absolutely think you need to you need to categorize that as a true single leg versus split stance and, and bilateral. I've always categorized it by the three. I've never done just the two. Yeah. And because of that, if, if you're looking to increase someone's single leg competency, and you're doing that via a split stance exercise, then you, and you think that's going to have carryover, which I'm sure it does have some, because we're not saying one's better. You just have to understand what is one improving versus the other. Yeah. Because you, I, then you can, you can basically say, well, then wouldn't bilateral improve it as well? Right. Because you're, you're loading the foot, you're grabbing the ground, you're doing so forth, you're building quote unquote strength. But it's the patterning really that we're looking at is can you stabilize over this small base of support and reorganize from the foot to the hip to the pelvis to the spine over that that small base and then be able to absorb and control and produce force out of that position. And that's not mm -hmm. going to be the same as when the other foot is anchored onto something. And it's not, as I said, good or bad. It's just, it's, it's going to be different. And so I want to have an element of each within there. Um, when I look at unilateral versus, you, you know, bilateral. And when I look at single leg training versus split stance training versus bilateral stance training. Yeah, no, you need them all for sure. So, uh, we didn't get to all of them, but that, that just gives us an opportunity to do another show with, with more Q and a coming down the road. So if you ever have questions, you know, uh, make sure you hit us up, uh, on the DMS with, within our social media and we stockpile them all that's, and then we save them up for episodes like this, or we'll reach right out to you with an answer, you know, individually, as well as if you have ideas for, for things you'd like to cover on the show, or we've gotten requests for, Hey, can you do a, uh, a video on showing me how to do ankle mobility and half kneeling. And, you know, we've then, you know, in turn, put that stuff together for you. So um, please do not hesitate in reaching out and let us know what is it that you want to learn? What is it that we can help you with? And that's, that's kind of what we're here for. So any closing thoughts before we wrap up, Mike? No, you know, I, I think um, a lot of the questions that people are asking is, 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 questions that are developed over time through years of work in the trenches. And, and, and I wish you could get it from a book or a text, but um, you know, we're fortunate enough to have a lot of people that have helped us and mentored us through the years. And uh, you know, now we get to do the same thing and, and share our wisdom um, with, with younger coaches. And uh, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but uh, we're happy to share and, and really mentor these younger coaches. And uh, you know, we're really, we're look, really looking forward to some of the stuff we're going to be working on the next year. Absolutely. And, and just know with any question, that you're going to ask, we have a basic rule that we're going to come back with you with a bunch of whys, 
right? It's, there's there's no simple answer because it's it comes. It, there's always that it depends, and I, we need to know the context. And so, if you ask us any of the questions we asked today, um, we're going to say, okay, well, why? And then you're going to say, well, because of this. Well, why? And then we're going to say because of this. And then, well, why? Because if we need to peel back that onion, it's not that simplistic. It's not as simple as saying, hey, do your knees hurt? Do this exercise and your knees won't hurt anymore. Maybe, maybe yeah. you get lucky and probably you won't. <laughs> so um, with that, uh, ask lots of questions, keep them coming, keep on listening. And we appreciate you for being there and, and, and listening to the show again. And this has been the Principles of Performance Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Principles of Performance Podcast. If you've enjoyed our content, please like and share on your social media outlets as well as subscribe and give us a review on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or whatever your preferred platform is to listen to. For more information on the Principles of Program Design courses and workshops, visit us at www.principlesofprogramdesign.com and follow us on all of the social media channels where we post new content every day. To save 10% on any PPD courses, enter the discount code PRINCIPLESPODCAST10 at checkout. If you have any questions we can answer or suggestions for the show, you can email us at info at principlesofprogramdesign.com or message us on social media. Thank you again for your support.